because the Holy Spirit saw what most of us didn't see was that this great, powerful, strong, seemingly impregnable fortress of a church was about to go through what Frank Sheed called the Great Explosion. And it literally exploded very quickly after the council. Um, so I, I still would use 65 as kind of a watershed year for when things be, not just began to change, but began to change at a pace that left everybody bewildered. This is the story of Humanae Vitae in the era of the protest. Hey guys, Jules here. So I decided for today's episode to forego the traditional introduction and just jump headfirst into our content <laughs> because that swift, abrupt entry is in a sense what this whole era felt like for those who lived it. For the past two episodes, we talked about the development of the Catholic subculture and the rising influence of the church in broader American society in everything from its influence in the arts, like literature and the movies, to its influence in politics. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Catholics, particularly in America, began the 60s feeling on top of the world. <laughs> they had influence in the highest office in the land. They were succeeding in the American dream, but they also came out of very strong internal subcultures from urban hotspots all up and down the East Coast and across the Midwest. The 1960s was supposed to be the, uh, the era of John F. Kennedy, who, who showed that Catholics could be just like everybody else. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that by the 1960s, Kennedy represented uh, the aspiration of many Catholics. This, by the way, is Dr. Christopher Shannon, professor of history from Christendom College in Virginia. And yes, you've heard from him before. <laughs> now, Catholics all of a sudden seem to have a certain claim on the culture. But as we mentioned in the previous episode... There were signs that this best of both worlds mentality, which Catholics had enjoyed so much in the post-war period, was starting to fade. And in the blink of an eye, their entire world was about to turn upside down. Now, when the story of the dissolving Catholic subculture is usually told, people like to try and blame certain bad guys, right? <laughs> Vatican II is to blame, secularization is to blame, the universities, the government, the arts, they have all played the role of the boogeyman at one point or another. The boogeyman who destroyed the heart of the golden age. 
But here's the thing. There is no one single bad guy in this story. Change came with extreme force, but in a sense, it was inevitable. Forces in the culture immersed into the lives of Catholics. Some good, some not so good. And as a result, we are all living the effects of this single decade today. So for our story, we need to address each of the things which contributed to the collapse of the Golden Age. We're going to begin with part one, the suburbs. In the 1940s and 50s and 60s after World War II, that kind of parochial culture was fated to fall apart because if nothing else, American culture is very good at making poor people into middle-class people. This, by the way, is Father Mark Massa, professor of theology at Boston College and a renowned expert on this era and the impact on the church. As Father Massa points out, the societal structures Americans were once accustomed to slowly fall apart in the post-war period and leading into the 60s. We talked a lot about this last episode, but basically the premise is this. Baby boomers were expanding. The GI Bill meant people in lower income classes could move into an educated middle class. And pretty soon, the American dream was encapsulated in the drastic rise of the suburbs. But for the church, and for lay Catholics in particular, suburban life did have a couple of drawbacks. For one thing, nothing seems centralized anymore. Remember, part of the success of the urban Catholic subculture, and really you saw this in small towns too, the success was the community had a literal center to their way of life, the parish. And each parish, of course, had a school and a rec center, parish hall, where everything from dances to sporting events were held. And each community also had their own boundary institutions, right? Like soup kitchens, hospitals, and even restaurants. But the physical expansion came with the drawback that people no longer had internal structures. They were mingled with the rest of their American counterparts and the physicalness of their Catholic way of life slowly fell away. Here's Dr. Maria Mazinga, archivist at Catholic University of America to explain. All of those institutions were abandoned as these families needed to expand out into the suburbs. That's one thing. And it couldn't really be helped. And I don't really think church officials at the time were thinking, how are we going to accommodate the move of all these Catholics out to the suburbs? They really didn't think about that um, in, a, in, a, in an organized way so that they could kind of move um, those institutional structures to accommodate these, these families that have moved out in the diaspora, right? Here's the thing, though. Even if their cultural structures were changing, even if they didn't have the same physical center to their lives, Catholics still had this one thing, (laughs) their worship. The Catholic Mass was still distinct, unique, and beautiful. Their Latin prayers, their incense, their antiphons, and high church hymns, which seemed to be shouted from the organ in the choir loft. This otherness to their worship was the one thing which set them apart. 
And for the most part, they actually really liked their otherness in this way. But then, as we all know, a literal about face occurs. Which brings me to part two, and I am sure I don't need to tell you what it is. What Vatican II did is it simply aided and abetted that collapse by changing the language of the liturgy into English, um, calling for more lay participation in the government of the church, and was largely perceived to be a more democratic model of Catholicism than the hierarchical model that had shaped the pre-Vatican II church. In early 1959, just three months after becoming Pope, now St. John XXIII announced he would convene a general council to explore the relationship of the Catholic Church in modern culture. I will not even attempt to go through the documents <laughs> and the changes set forth by this council, nor do I have enough information, honestly, about the history of why St. John XXIII chose to convene the council in the manner in which he did. But I do know two important things for our discussion. One, John XXIII convened the General Council to the surprise of basically everyone, <laughs> including his cardinals. And two, the changes implemented, particularly in the liturgy, happened very quickly with very little preparation, especially for the liturgical changes. All of the sudden, Easter Sunday of 1964, the priest turns towards his congregation during the Eucharistic rite. And I don't mean to sound dramatic here, but everything seemed to change in that moment. The worship as they knew it was gone and would only change more with each passing decade. Again, I am not going to even make any assessments on the quality of the liturgy, specifically the music, but I am just telling you this from a historical perspective. The assimilation of American culture into the liturgy had two primary consequences. First, Catholics lost what made them distinct. The otherness which they had taken pride in for so long now seemed archaic and old-fashioned. The congregants, specifically lay people, ended up being a bit confused. There were many attempts to organize on the national level to communicate the changes to the population. Um, and they would be by category in the, the Bishop's Conference papers. For example, there'd be a whole set of documents related to the liturgy. And what happened was the bishops would get together and discuss how to publicize the changes among the general population. It would be less easy to do because the modern communication methods that we have now, they didn't have then. So they did attempt to do that. There's files related to that. We also have um, papers of a, a gentleman who was engaged in liturgical changes, McManus. Um, and we have his papers here. And we have a lot of insights into what those changes meant and how they were conducted. Now, what happens is you're talking about a massive institution in the United States, millions and millions of Catholics separated into 180 or so um, dioceses, maybe 145 at that time. I'm not exactly sure exactly. We have 190 now, I think. But separated into these dioceses all over the country, it was very difficult to communicate the changes to all the populations, the local populations, first of all. Second of all, um, the fact is, some of the priests didn't agree with the changes, 
necessarily, even though they would have wanted to adhere to the hierarchy. The fact is, not all priests think alike, nor should they, right? Catholics had lost their distinct form of worship, and as a result, started to look just like everybody else. Here's the thing. The second consequence of these liturgical changes for American Catholics in particular, religion, in essence, simply became a matter of denominations rather than being central to one's existence. Catholicism as as a faith started to simply look and sound a lot more like uh, various forms of Protestantism. I once heard this quote in my undergraduate studies, and I think I'm pretty sure it was from Father Karl Rodner, who was a leading voice at the Second Vatican Council. Now, warning, I can't find this quote anywhere. (laughs) I have tried and tried. And so I am not able to confirm definitively if it was Rahner who said this. But the quote went something like this. In a letter to the Holy Father, Father Rahner wrote, Please, Holy Father, let us have at least 10 years of preparation, or else we should have 100 years of chaos. The point here, of course, is not that Vatican II was bad. Goodness, I'm sorry. You're just never going to hear me say that. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. The point, unfortunately, is that what the historical record does indicate is that the speed of implementation only confused the faithful. Rahner, or whoever said this phrase, was right. It wasn't that change was bad. It was that the implementation of that change should have been done in a more prudential way. Because here's the thing. It wasn't just the church which was changing. The whole world was changing right alongside of it. Which brings me to part three, social movements. I think lots of other things were happening. The free speech movement, the rise of the movements, the feminist movement, um, uh, civil rights movement, all those movements sort of aided and abetted the GI Bill and Vatican II to sort of like invite Catholics out into, you know, middle class affluence. If you listen to the previous two episodes of this series, you'll remember that I said in this series, we were letting the arts serve as a guide, a gateway into the history of the Catholic subculture. Now, our first episode used a classic work of literature. Our second episode entered into the world of film. But today, there seemed no better medium to explore the rich and chaotic history of the 60s than the world of music, or specifically, one kind of music. As Father Massa mentioned, the 60s, particularly in the United States, ushered in the rise of the social movements. And many of these movements became known as protest movements, right? Movements which stood in protest to certain legal or cultural injustices. The civil rights movement became really the pinnacle standard of this, but there was also anti-war protests, free speech, and women's liberation. And these movements were often accompanied and really exemplified in the music of the generation. Protest music became central to the fight. And as a result, 
this decade produced some of the most iconic songs this country will probably ever know. So for example, there was anti-war music. One of my all-time favorites is Fortunate Son by Clarence Clearwater Revival. course, there were the iconic songs in the fights for civil rights, especially among Black Americans. My all-time favorite song of this really this whole era and one of my favorite songs of all time is Sam Cooke's brilliant masterpiece, Change is Gonna Come. Oh my goodness. But here's another interesting thing about this era. Because the civil rights movement and the anti-war movements produced such iconic and memorable music, another protest group sometimes felt like they were set aside. But creeping (laughs) into the cultural and really artistic influence of this era was the rise of women's liberation music. Now think about this for a minute. Starting in 1960, you had songs like You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore, but there was also Aretha Franklin's Respect in 1967, which rose to the top of the charts and still remains a fierce anthem for modern-day feminists. But then there was this other song. This song, which was so overshadowed and forgotten, honestly, because it came from the small but rising musical genre of country music. And it was a song which was so easily forgotten because many radio stations had actually banned it. (laughs) Listeners, I give you the brilliant Loretta Lynn and her interesting song, Now I've Got the Pill. You and me. And done me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. Which brings me to the final part of our episode today, Humane Vitae. Every historian I spoke with acknowledged that while there were many different factors in the collapse of the ghettos, there was one fact which remained central to the discussion. Humane Vitae changed how we live as a Catholic people. 
To understand this part of the story, I'm going to introduce two new experts. Well, I am David Domboski. I am a PhD candidate at Duquesne University. Now, David is a friend of mine from our graduate studies, which is why I reached out to him. He is getting his PhD right now, and he specializes in this particular historical period, especially due to his academic interest in sexual ethics. And then there is this wonderful woman. My name is Angela Franks. I am a theologian. I teach at St. John's Seminary, in particular in their programs for the laity. Dr. Franks has a wide range of academic interests, including the history of eugenics, contraception, and theology of the body. Now, both David and Dr. Franks are going to help us close our story today. Because to understand the chaotic and, frankly, strange transformation of Catholic culture in America, you have to understand the impact of Humanae Vitae. So let's start from the beginning, the initial decision. All Christian denominations up until 1930 agreed that contraception was immoral. So this was not, this was not an issue that the Reformation in the 16th century fought over. You know, this was this was essentially an area of Christian agreement. And this agreement lasted until the year 1930, when the Anglican Church declared at the Lambeth Conference that contraception was permissible by married couples for serious reasons. And this really was the opening, the beginning of a new idea of sexual ethics in Christian circles. But here's the thing. (laughs) The decision by the Anglican Church didn't occur out of the bloom. It rose to prominence at the time because for a few decades up to that point, a group of activists known as the Neo-Malthusians started exploring contraception as a means of combating what they believed to be a population crisis. By the way, there was not a population crisis. And their ideas stemmed from their namesake. The name came from Thomas Malthus, who argued in the 18th century that population growth would always outstrip food supply. And the neo part of the neo-Malthusians, which you start to get by the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, the neo part was that Malthus advocated continence, or you would say sexual abstinence, as the solution to this problem. And the neo-Malthusians advocated contraception. And so we have the entrance of the quality, but not quantity, rhetoric of societal family planning and the arrival of eugenics. Now, when we think about this idea today, of course, it sounds gross, just gross. (laughs) But what I found most interesting about this period after speaking with Dr. Franks is the extent to which this idea was simply within the popular opinion of the day. Remember, this was the 1920s and 30s in the heart of the first sexual revolution, often known as the proto-sexual revolution. And on top of that, the idea of contraception as a right what we might call reproductive rights, started seeping into classical feminism. And these ideas not only influenced the Anglican church, but influenced almost every area of society, from education to laws. You know, eugenics was something, if you were educated, you were a eugenicist. 
in the 1920s. I mean, just everybody was, you know, if you were a legislator, if you were a college president, a professor, I mean, everybody was a eugenicist in some form or another. I cannot stress enough this very important point. It was almost impossible to not succumb to the eugenic thinking of the day. Being a supporter of eugenics was a mark of your intelligence. And under this backdrop came a name quite familiar in our American culture, Margaret Singer, the infamous founder of Planned Parenthood, who used the intellectual backing of professors and legislators to begin pushing for wide acceptance and distribution of birth control, particularly to poor and minority populations who she and other activists often referred to as the unfit. Listen, I don't really know enough about the demographics of my listeners yet, (laughs) but if you're starting to get defensive of Sanger, you need to understand this, this very disturbing part of her history, because the bottom line is Sanger and other neo-Malthusians were very clear about the category of people that they did not believe should be procreating. And with this rise of eugenic thinking and the rising acceptance of contraception in Protestant circles, a shockwave was about to enter the discussion of sexual ethics. The one specific thing that happened that you can point to is the development of the birth control pill. With the birth control pill in the early 60s, now all of a sudden, I mean, up to then, people basically had various forms of barrier methods, condoms, diaphragms, what have you. And and that seemed pretty straightforward. This hormonal thing where now it wasn't a matter of, you know, at the very initiation of the sexual act, somebody uses a barrier method. Now it's a woman takes a pill, you know, every day in the morning. Maybe she has sexual activity. Maybe she doesn't. You know, like, what is this thing? The pill entered the scene in 1960 when the first oral contraceptive on void was approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Now understand something. Up until this point, contraception was thought strictly in terms of barrier methods. But with this new technology, the church faced a dilemma. Was this contraception, is the pill which changes a woman's body chemistry the same as a barrier method in terms of theological ethics? So something needed to be done. They had to get to the bottom of this. Here's my friend David to explain what happened next. Yeah, so it's it's important to note that like the commission was called to look at this right this issue, not to bring about a huge debate in the church over the nature of contraception itself, right? Whether or not it was, it was immoral, because the previous two popes had um, issued statements, one from an encyclical, Cassie Canubi, that confirmed the 2,000-year-old teaching of the Catholic Church on this. But what this did uh, do the calling of the commission and the leaving out of the discussion of birth control from the bishops at the council was this allowed many people, specifically theologians in the church who were wanting a change in church teaching, the opportunity to tell others that that's what was taking place. Now remember everyone, while this commission is called, the church is also in the heart of the Second Vatican Council. And soon with the death of St. John the 23rd, another Pope Saint 
Pope Paul VI decides the church simply cannot ignore the problem any longer. The church must expand its pill commission to explore the question of contraception as a whole. Much to the delight of several prominent Catholics in America. This really got going in the middle of the 60s, right? There are professors I can think of. He was a priest. Uh, he might still be. I don't know. But uh, Father Charles Curran, Richard McCormick, both uh, priests and uh, moral theologians at Catholic University of America, were very vocal with others by the mid-60s in their opposite or their opinion that the church's teaching could change, and that would eventually um, roll over into it probably should change, and then they would say that it will it was going to change. So the commission expanded, and its findings were put together and given to the Holy Father in 1965. And the majority of the commission, what came to be known as the majority report, recommended that the church allow, that's right, allow contraception as an ethical practice between spouses. And the minority report, also given to the Holy Father, stated the belief that the church should maintain and validate its traditional teaching on contraception. And the Holy Father, Paul VI, looked at these two reports, thanked his commission, sat and prayed with them for three years. I do, I do not want to sound harsh on um, Pope Paul VI here because I think he's an incredibly brave man, even just to continue doing what do his study that he was doing and to make the pronouncement that he did in Humanae Vitae. But a grave mistake that he made was delaying the release of Humanae Vitae until 1968 because the council ended in 1965 I believe the Birth Control Commission wrapped up its um, deliberations by then as well. And so every really month from then to the council until July of 1968, the Catholic faithful were expecting the Pope to release his decision on the pill or birth control. For three years, the church was in just a strange limbo of sexual ethics. The majority and minority reports were leaked to the media, and Catholics, particularly in the West, believed they would soon be joining their Protestant counterparts in contraceptive use. Seminary faculty began teaching soon-to-be priests this new theology surrounding sexual ethics. Confessionals were just weird, confusing places of, oh, don't worry, that's not going to be a sin much longer. <laughs> even, <laughs> even television shows would have panels where people in favor of changing church teaching outnumbered traditional thinking five to one. A few times, the Vatican would issue some kind of vague public statements reiterating its teachings, but it seemed the damage had been done. I asked David why he thought Paul VI was silent for so long about this issue. Was he worried, perhaps, about a schism? It's very, it's very possible, um, but it, unfortunately, it was a massive mistake because there was... Um, for the most part, silence. Like, you know, he did come out, I think, twice, I want to say, once in 1964 and once in 1967, and said that the church's teachings were still in force, of course, but 
as far as I remember, these were very weak statements. And uh, of course, the those who are proponents of change, both in the media and in the church, would basically discount those and say that change is coming. Now, most of us know, of course, what happened next. As is kind of notorious, as is known, the the Pontifical Birth Control Commission voted to change church teaching on contraception. Except there was, so there was a minority that dissented with that commission and is also fairly notoriously known. Paul VI disagreed with his commission and in 1968 issued Humani Vitae, which supported traditional Christian teaching on the question. Paul VI did not do what the Western world had so hoped he would. He cited in a complete surprise to everyone, but I guess the Holy Spirit, <laughs> with the minority opinion. And in 1968, a year which really changed the world, honestly, Paul VI issued his encyclical Humani Vitae a small document reiterating the church's existing teaching. But this is a series on subculture after all. And for most of us, especially those of us who grew up in the generation after this era, we have often found ourselves confused with this single question. How did all of this happen? (laughs) Why today, for example, are most practicing Catholics in the West not actually practicing this teaching? Why does disagreement with this teaching seem to be the standard belief of the day, especially among people who call themselves Catholic? Here's David's response. I don't think I speak from too much um, bias as as a theologian who has studied this subject to say that the issue of contraception and humanae vitae following the Second Vatican Council really was what ignited so much change, dissent, and falling away from the church. Immediately following the release of the document, priests in the Archdiocese of Baltimore gathered to compose an official letter of dissent to the document and its central premise, no contraception. This statement of dissent was signed by over 80 priests in the archdiocese and was published the next day in major newspapers in the area, including the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun. Pretty soon, priests from dioceses all over the country followed. There's a fascinating account, by the way, of this time by Cardinal Stafford, which I posted on our website. Please read it <laughs> when you get a chance. It basically recounts the fact that most priests hadn't even read the document when they decided to dissent from it. But the damage had been done. For three years, the Vatican sat on this decision, and people started living with the idea that the church would change. And when the church didn't change, Catholics, led by their priests, decided it didn't matter. They would live how they wanted to live anyway. In 1972, this is only four years after this, right? This is a priest in the Catholic Church. Uh, He said, the encyclical Humanae Vitae was for all practical purposes an appeal to pure authority a pure authority which the Pope mistakenly assumed he still had. All over the United States, as a result of the anger towards this little encyclical, dissent slowly seeped into the Catholic way of life. Of the over 600 priests who would eventually publicly dissent from the document, only two or three dioceses enacted any sort of disciplinary actions. 
When dioceses did try to discipline priests, as in the case of Father Charles Curran, they were immediately met with pushback and inevitably didn't enact any penalties for the next two decades. The Vatican also stayed silent during this time, likely as a means of preventing open schism in the Western world. And the effects of this spiritual life of the church were seen almost automatically. We all know the stories, right? The liturgy got a little wonky. The priests and nuns fled their vocations in rapid numbers. And dissent became the acceptable position of everyday Catholics. Whether we like to admit it or not, Catholicism as we know it today in America stems from this single decade. One thing that this caused in the Catholic faithful was a precipitous decline in confessionals and going to confession, right? So it's not just that it's not just that they would stop, right, confessing contraception. It's that the, the, the priests say that the numbers just plummeted at, after this period. And again, a lot of this had to do with uh, the emphasis on conscience and the idea prevalent in America, so not the culture of America of kind of this autonomous morality uh, that I can make my own decisions concerning morality. The rise of the suburbs, Vatican II, the social movements, and of course, Humanae Vitae. Within a single 10-year period, the Catholic Church in America changed forever. Cultural Catholicism entered the scene and set up shop in the hearts of Catholic Americans across the country. The deep sense of spiritual identity, the parish-centered structures, the bright festas, and the cultural distinctiveness, all of it was gone. And our generations are left, in a sense, picking up the pieces. By the way, let me just be clear, this isn't the fault of our parents' generation. I can't stand when people say that, honestly. The fact that many of our parents still chose to raise us in the faith in spite of the chaos is honestly the ultimate sign of bravery, in my opinion. Because I'm kind of sick of the whining in general. I don't like when people go into nostalgic mode. (laughs) I don't like the claims of let's go back to the ghettos, right? It's important to know what we had. That's what this whole series is about. It's important to know what we lost. And it's important to know how everything kind of went crazy for a while there. But no one benefits when we enter into the realm of complaining. Our church, at least in America, it is broken and it is hurting right now. We need real solutions on how to fix it, on how to effectively live in a Catholic culture in the modern era. And I actually happen to have some ideas on how to do just that with the help of some friends. Next time on Mystery Through Manners.
Thank you so very much to all the people we spoke with for this episode. Thank you especially to our two new experts, Dr. Angela Franks and my dear old friend, David Dembowski. For more information on all the experts we spoke to and some links to the songs which we played, please visit our website. And by the way, we will be talking with Dr. Franks again for an upcoming episode in a few weeks, so please stay tuned for that. Next week, folks, is our last episode of the season. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm so grateful. We have something really special in store for next week, so please tune in. God bless you, and we'll see you then. 